Chapter Twelve of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Candace Tuttle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Macy Ward. Chapter Twelve Clearing the Ground for Orthodoxy. G. K. Chesterton, A Criticism, published anonymously in 1908, was a challenge thrown to the world of letters, for it demanded the recognition of Chesterton as a force to be reckoned with in the modern world. As its title implied, the book was by no means a tribute of sheer admiration and agreement. Gilbert was rebuked for that love of a pun or an effective phrase that sometimes led him into indefensible positions. It was hotly asked of him that he should abandon his unjust attitude toward Ibsen. He was accused of calling himself a liberal, and being in fact a Tory. But even in differing from him, the book showed him as of real importance, not least in the sketch given of his life, and of the influences that had contributed to the formation of his mind. It did, too, another thing. It clarified his philosophical position for the world at large. For some time now, many had been demanding such a clarification. When G. K. attacked the utopia of Wells and of Shaw, both Wells and Shaw had been urgent in their demands that he should play fair by setting forth his own utopia. When he attacked the fundamental philosophy of G. S. Street, Mr. Street retorted that it would be time for him to worry about his philosophy when G. K.'s had been unfolded. G.K.'s retort to this was orthodoxy. G.K. Chesterton, A Criticism, far the best book that has ever been written about Chesterton, showed at last a mind that had really grasped his philosophy, and could even have outlined his utopia. Perhaps this was the less surprising, as it ultimately turned out to have been written by his brother Cecil. I do not know at what stage Cecil revealed his authorship, but I remember that at first Francis told me only that they suspected Cecil, because it was from the angle of his opinions that the book criticized many of Gilbert's. However, I was at that date only an acquaintance, and the truth may still have been a family secret. At any rate, Cecil it was, and it is small wonder if after all those years of arguing he understood something of the man with whom he had been measuring forces. But he did better than that, for he explained him to others, without ever having to resort to these arguments, which after all were more or less private property. He explained G. K.'s general philosophy from the Napoleon, his ideas of cosmic good from the Wild Knight and the Man Who Was Thursday, which had just been published that same year, 1908. In this fantastic story, the group of anarchists, distinguished by being called after the days of the week, turn out, through a series of incredible adventures, to be, all save one, detectives in disguise. The gigantic figure of Sunday, before whom they all tremble, turns from the chief of the anarchists, chief of the destructive forces, into... What? The subtitle, A Nightmare, is Needed 
for Sunday would seem to be some wild vision, seen in dreams, not merely of forces of good, of sanity, of creation, but even of God himself. When almost twenty years later, the man who was Thursday was adapted for the stage, Chesterton said in an interview, In an ordinary detective tale, the investigator discovers that some amiable-looking fellow, who subscribes to all the charities and is fond of animals, has murdered his grandmother, or is a trigamist. I thought it would be fun to make the tearing away of menacing masks reveal benevolence. Associated with that merely fantastic notion was the one that there is actually a lot of good to be discovered in unlikely places, that we who are fighting each other may be all fighting on the right side. I think it is quite true that it is just as well we do not, while the fight is on, know all about each other. The soul must be solitary, or there would be no place for courage. A rather amusing thing was said by Father Knox on this point. He said that he should have regarded the book as entirely pantheist, and as preaching that there was good in everything, if it had not been for the introduction of the one real anarchist and pessimist. But he was prepared to wager that if the book survives for a hundred years, which it won't, they will say that the real anarchist was put in afterwards by the priests. But though I was more foggy about ethical and theological matters than I am now, I was quite clear on that issue, that there was a final adversary, and that you might find a man resolutely turned away from goodness. People have asked me whom I mean by Sunday. Well, I think, on the whole, and allowing for the fact that he is a person in a tale, I think you can take him to stand for nature, as distinguished from God. Huge, boisterous, full of vitality, dancing with a hundred legs, bright with the glare of the sun, and at first sight somewhat regardless of us and our desires. There is a phrase used at the end spoken by Sunday, Can ye drink from the cup that I drink of? Which seems to mean that Sunday is God. That is the only serious note in the book. The face of Sunday changes. You tear off the mask of nature, and you find God. Monsignor Knox has called The Man Who Is Thursday an extraordinary book, written as if the publisher had commissioned him to write something, rather like The Pilgrim's Progress, in the style of the Pickwick Papers. Which explains, perhaps, why some reviewers call it irreverent. The very wildness of it conveys a sense of thoughts, seething and straining, in an effort to express the inexpressible. Later, in his more definitely philosophical books, G.K. could say calmly, much that here he splashes, on a ten-leagued canvas, with brushes of comet's hair, with all the violent directness of a vision. Of that vision, his brother began the interpretation in his challenging book. Reactions were interesting, for even those who wanted most ardently to say that Cecil's book should not have been written found that it was necessary to say it loudly, and to say it at great length. Their very violence showed their sense of Chesterton as a peril, even when they abused anyone who felt him to be a portent. 
it was not the kind of contempt that is really bestowed on the contemptible. The Academy expended more than two columns, saying, We propose to deal with the quack, and leave his sycophants and lick-spittles to themselves. One skips him in numerous corners of third- and fourth-rate journals, e.g., the Illustrated London News, The Bookman, Daily News, and one avoids his books, because they are always, and inevitably, a bore. Lancelot Bathurst had also dared to write of G.K. in his daily life as a journalist, so the article goes on. Let us kneel with the Honourable Lancelot at his greasy, burgundy-stained shrine, what time the jingling hansom waits us with its rolling occupant, and his sword-stick, and his revolver, and his pockets stacked with penny dreadfuls. The fact is, we have in Mr. Chesterton the true product of the debauched halfpenny press. If the halfpenny press ceased to notice him forthwith, it seems to us more than probable that he would cease at once to be of the highest importance in literary circles, and the bishops and members of Parliament who have honoured him with their kind notice would be compelled to drop him. Most of the reviews were very different from this one, which is certainly great fun, although some few other reviewers suggested that Gilbert himself wrote the criticism. I have wondered whether the Academy notices of his own books, all much like this, were written by a personal enemy, or merely by one of the jolly people, as he often called them who were maddened by his views. For some years now, Gilbert had been gathering in his mind the material for orthodoxy. Some of the ideas we have seen faintly traced in the notebook, and the colored lands, but they all grew to maturity, in the atmosphere of constant controversy. In a controversy with the Reverend R. J. Campbell, we see, for instance, his convictions about the reality of sin shaping under our eyes. Discussing modernism in the nation, he analyzes the differences between the true development of an idea and the mere changing from one idea to another. Modernism, claiming to be a development, was actually an abandonment of the Christian idea. For the Catholic, this is among the most interesting of his controversies. In the course of it, he refers to the earlier works of Newman and the literature of the Oxford movement to support his view of the Anglican position. I have already said that Chesterton read far more than was usually supposed, because he read so quickly and with so little parade of learning. And it has been too lightly assumed that the statement in orthodoxy that he avoided works of Christian apologetic meant that he had not read any of the great Christian writers of the past. True, he was not then, or at any time, reading books of apologetic. He must, however, have been reading something more life-giving, as we learn from a single hint. Asked to draw up a scheme of reading for 1908, in G.K.'s Weekly, he suggests— Butler's Analogy, Coleridge's Confessions of an Inquiring Spirit, Newman's Apologia, St. Augustine's Confessions, and the Summa of St. Thomas Aquinas. It was absurd, he said in this article, to suppose that the ancients did not see our modern problems. The truth was, 
that the great ancients not only saw them, but saw through them. Butler had sketched the real line along which Christianity must ultimately be defended. These great writers all remained modern, while the new theology takes one back to the time of crinolines. I almost expect to see Mr. R. J. Campbell in peg-top trousers, with very long side-whiskers. In this controversy, although not yet a Catholic, he showed the gulf between the modernist theory of development and the Newman doctrine, with a clarity greater than any Catholic writer of the time. A man who is always going back and picking to pieces his own first principles may be having an amusing time, but he is not developing as Newman understood development. Newman meant that if you wanted a tree to grow, you must plant it finally in some definite spot. It may be, I do not know, and I do not care, that Catholic Christianity is just now passing through one of its numberless periods of undue repression and silence. But I do know this, that when the great powers break forth again, the new epics and the new arts, they will break out on the ancient and living tree. They cannot break out upon the little shrubs that you are always pulling up by the roots to see if they are growing. Against R. J. Campbell, he showed in a lecture on Christianity and social reform how belief in sin, as well as in goodness, was more favorable to social reform than was the rather woolly optimism that refused to recognize evil. The nigger driver will be delighted to hear that God is imminent in him, the sweater that he has not in any way become divided from the supreme perfection of the universe. If the new theology would not lead to social reform, the social utopia to which the philosophy of Wells and of Shaw was pointing seemed to Chesterton not a heaven on earth to be desired, but a kind of final hell to be avoided, since it banished all freedom and human responsibility. Arguing with them was again highly fruitful, and two subjects he chose for speeches are suggestive, the terror of tendencies, and shall we abolish the inevitable. In the New Age, Shaw wrote about Belloc and Chesterton, and so did Wells, while Chesterton wrote about Wells and Shaw, till the Philistines grew angry, called it self-advertisement and log-rolling, and urged that a bill for the abolition of Shaw and Chesterton should be introduced into Parliament. But G.K. had no need for advertisement of himself, or his ideas just then. He had a platform, he had an eager audience. Every week he wrote in the Illustrated London News, beginning in 1905, to do Our Notebook. This continued till his death in 1936. He was still writing every Saturday in the Daily News. Publishers were disputing for each of his books. Yet he rushed into every religious controversy that was going on, because thereby he could clarify and develop his ideas. The most important of all these was the controversy with Blatchford, editor of the Clarion, who had written a rationalist credo, entitled, God and My Neighbor. In 1903-4, he had the generosity and the wisdom to throw open the Clarion to the freest possible discussion of his views, 
the Christian attack was made by a group of which Chesterton was the outstanding figure, and was afterwards gathered into a paper volume called The Doubts of Democracy. One essay in this volume, written in 1903, is of primary importance in any study of the sources of orthodoxy, for it gives a brilliant outline of one of the main contentions of the book, and shows even better than orthodoxy itself what he meant by saying that he had first learnt Christianity from its opponents. It is clear that by now he believed in the divinity of Christ. The pamphlet itself has fallen into oblivion, and Chesterton's share of it was only three short essays. I think it well to quote a good deal from the first of these, because in it he has put in concentrated form, and with different illustrations, what he developed five years later. There is nothing more packed with thought in the whole of his writings than these essays. The first of all the difficulties that I have in controverting Mr. Blatchford is simply this, that I shall be very largely going over his own ground. My favorite textbook of theology is God and My Neighbor, but I cannot repeat it in detail. If I give each of my reasons for being a Christian, a vast number of them would be Mr. Blatchford's reasons for not being one. For instance, Mr. Blatchford and his school point out that there are many myths parallel to the Christian story, that there were pagan Christs, and Red Indian incarnations, and Patagonian crucifixions, for all I know or care. But does not Mr. Blatchford see the other side of the fact? If the Christian God really made the human race, would not the human race tend to rumors and perversions of the Christian God? If the center of our life is a certain fact, would not people far from the center have a muddled version of that fact? If we were so made that a son of God must deliver us, is it odd that Patagonians should dream of a son of God? The Blatchfordian position really amounts to this, that because a certain thing has impressed millions of different people as likely or necessary, therefore it cannot be true. And then this bashful being, veiling his own talents, convicts the wretched G.K.C. of paradox. The story of a Christ is very common in legend and literature. So is the story of two lovers parted by fate. So is the story of two friends killing each other for a woman. But will it seriously be maintained that because these two stories are common as legends, therefore no two friends were ever separated by love, or no two lovers by circumstances? It is tolerably plain, surely, that these two stories are common because the situation is an intensely probable and human one, because our nature is so built as to make them almost inevitable. Thus, in this first instance, when learned skeptics come to me and say, Are you aware that the Kafirs have a sort of incarnation? I should reply, Speaking as an unlearned person, I don't know. But speaking as a Christian, I should be very much astonished if they hadn't. Take a second instance. The secularist says that Christianity has been a gloomy and ascetic thing, and points to the procession of austere or ferocious saints who have given up home and happiness 
and macerated health and sex. But it never seems to occur to him that the very oddity and completeness of these men's surrender make it look very much as if there were really something actual and solid in the thing for which they sold themselves. They gave up all pleasures for one pleasure of spiritual ecstasy. They may have been mad, but it looks as if there really were such a pleasure. They gave up all human experiences for the sake of one superhuman experience. They may have been wicked, but it looks as if there were such an experience. It is perfectly tenable that this experience is as dangerous and selfish a thing as drink. A man who goes ragged and homeless in order to see visions may be as repellent and immoral as a man who goes ragged and homeless in order to drink brandy. That is a quite reasonable position. But what is manifestly not a reasonable position, what would be, in fact, not far from being an insane position, would be to say that the raggedness of the man and the stupefied degradation of the man proved that there was no such thing as brandy. That is precisely what the secularist tries to say. He tries to prove that there is no such thing as supernatural experience by pointing at the people who have given up everything for it. He tries to prove that there is no such thing by proving that there are people who live on nothing else. Again, I may submissively ask, whose is the paradox? Take a third instance. The secularist says that Christianity produced tumult and cruelty. He seems to suppose that this proves it to be bad. But it might prove it to be very good. For men commit crimes not only for bad things, far more often for good things. For no bad things can be desired quite so passionately and persistently as good things can be desired and only very exceptional men desire very bad and unnatural things. Most crime is committed because, owing to some peculiar complication, very beautiful or necessary things are in some danger. And when something is set before mankind that is not only enormously valuable, but also quite new, the sudden vision, the chance of winning it, the chance of losing it, drive them mad. It has the same effect in the moral world that the finding of gold has in the economic world. It upsets values and creates a kind of cruel rush. We need not go far for instances quite apart from the instances of religion. When the modern doctrines of brotherhood and liberality were preached in France in the 18th century, the time was ripe for them. The educated classes everywhere had been growing towards them. The world, to a very considerable extent, welcomed them. And yet all that preparation and openness were unable to prevent the burst of anger and agony which greets anything good. And if the slow and polite preaching of rational fraternity in a rational age ended in the massacres of September— what an a fortiori is here. What would be likely to be the effect of the sudden dropping into a dreadfully evil century of a dreadfully perfect truth? What would happen if a world baser than the world of Sade 
were confronted with a gospel purer than the gospel of rousseau the mere flinging of the polished pebble of republican idealism into the artificial lake of eighteenth-century europe produced a splash that seemed to splash the heavens and a storm that drowned ten thousand men what would happen if a star from heaven really fell into the slimy and bloody pool of a hopeless and decaying humanity men swept a city with the guillotine a continent with a sabre because liberty equality and fraternity were too precious to be lost how if christianity was yet more maddening because it was yet more precious but why should we labor the point when one who knew human nature as it can really be learnt from fishermen and women and natural people saw from his quiet village the track of this truth across history and in saying that he came to bring not peace but a sword set up eternally his colossal realism against the eternal sentimentality of the secularist thus then in the third instance when the learned sceptic says christianity produced wars and persecutions we shall reply naturally and lastly let me explain an example which leads me on directly to the general matter i wish to discuss for the remaining space of the articles at my command the secularist constantly points out that the hebrew and christian religions began as local things that their god was a tribal god that they gave him material form and attached him to particular places this is an excellent example of one of the things that if i were conducting a detailed campaign i should use as an argument for the validity of biblical experience for if there really are some other and higher beings than ourselves and if they in some strange way at some emotional crisis really revealed themselves to rude poets or dreamers in very simple times that these rude people should regard the revelation as local and connect it with the particular hill or river where it happened seems to me exactly what any reasonable human being would expect it has a far more credible look than if they had talked cosmic philosophy from the beginning if they had i should have suspected priestcraft and forgeries and third-century gnosticism if there be such a being as god and he can speak to a child and if god spoke to a child in the garden the child would of course say that god lived in the garden i should not think it any less likely to be true for that if the child said god is everywhere an impalpable essence pervading and supporting all constituents of the cosmos alike if i say the infant addressed me in the above terms i should think he was much more likely to have been with the governess than with god so if moses had said god was an infinite energy i should be certain he had seen nothing extraordinary as he said he was a burning bush i think it very likely that he did see something extraordinary for whatever be the divine secret and whether or no it has as people have believed sometimes broken bounds and surged into our world 
at least it lies on the side furthest away from pedants and their definitions, and nearest to the silver souls of quiet people, to the beauty of bushes, and the love of one's native place. Thus, then, in our last instance, out of hundreds that might be taken, we conclude in the same way. When the learned skeptics say, the visions of the Old Testament were local and rustic and grotesque, we shall answer, of course, they were genuine. Thus, as I said at the beginning, I find myself, to start with, face to face with the difficulty that to mention the reasons that I have for believing in Christianity is, in very many cases, simply to repeat those arguments which Mr. Blatchford, in some strange way, seems to regard as arguments against it. His book is really rich and powerful. He has undoubtedly set up these four great guns of which I have spoken. I have nothing to say against the size and ammunition of the guns. I only say that by some strange accident of arrangement, he has set up those four pieces of artillery, pointing at himself. If I were not so humane, I should say, Gentlemen of the Secularist Guard, fire first. He goes on in the next essay to talk of the positive arguments for Christianity, of this religious philosophy which was and will be again the study of the highest intellects and the foundation of the strongest nations, but which our little civilization has for a while forgotten. Very briefly, he then deals with determinism and free will, the need for the supernatural, and the question of the fall. Dealing with the fall, he uses one of his most brilliant illustrations. We speak, he says, of a manly man, but not of a whaley whale. If you want to dissuade a man from drinking his tenth whiskey, you would slap him on the back and say, Be a man! No one who wished to dissuade a crocodile from eating his tenth explorer would slap it on the back and say, Be a crocodile! for we have no notion of a perfect crocodile, no allegory of a whale expelled from his whaley Eden. Continuing the swift sketch of some elements of Christian theology, Chesterton next deals with miracles. While the development in orthodoxy makes this section look very slight, there are passages that make one realize the mental wealth of a man who could afford to leave them behind and rush on. Blatchford had said that no English judge would accept the evidence for the resurrection, and G.K. answers that, possibly, Christians have not all got such an extravagant reverence for English judges as is felt by Mr. Blatchford himself. The experiences of the founder of Christianity have perhaps left us in a vague doubt of the infallibility of courts of law. In reference to the many rationalists, whose refusal to accept any miracle is based on the fact that experience is against it, he says, There was a great Irish rationalist of this school, who, when he was told that a witness had seen him commit a murder, said that he could bring a hundred witnesses who had not seen him commit it. The final essay, on The Eternal Heroism of the Slums, has two main points. 
It begins with an acknowledgment of the crimes of Christians, only pointing out that while Mr. Blatchford outlaws the church for this reason, he is prepared to invoke the state whose crimes are far worse. But the most vigorous part of the essay is a furious attack on determinism. Blatchford apparently held that bad surroundings inevitably produce bad men. Chesterton had seen the heroism of the poor in the most evil surroundings, and was furious at this association of vice with poverty, the vilest and the oldest and the dirtiest of all the stories that insolence has ever flung against the poor. Men can and do lead heroic lives, in the worst of circumstances, because there is in humanity a power of responsibility. There is free will. Blatchford, in the name of humanity, is attacking the greatest of human attributes. More numerous than can be counted, in all the wars and persecutions of the world, men have looked out of their little grated windows and said, At least my thoughts are free. No, no, says the face of Mr. Blatchford, suddenly appearing at the window. Your thoughts are the inevitable result of heredity and environment. Your thoughts are as material as your dungeons. Your thoughts are as mechanical as the guillotine. So pants this strange comforter from cell to cell. I suppose Mr. Blatchford would say that in his utopia nobody would be in prison. What do I care whether I am in prison or no, if I have to drag chains everywhere? A man in his utopia may have, for all I know, free food, free meadows, his own estate, his own palace. What does it matter? He may not have his own soul. An architect once discoursed to me on the need of humility in face of the material, the stone and marble of his building. Thus Chesterton was humble before the reality he was seeking to interpret. Pride he wants to find as the falsification of fact by the introduction of self. To learn, a man must subtract himself from the study of any solid and objective thing. This humility he had in a high degree, and also that rarer humility which saw his friends and opponents alike as intellectual equals. Almost anybody, Monsignor Knox once said, was an ordinary person compared with him. But this was an idea that certainly never occurred to him. The philosophy shaping into orthodoxy was stimulated by newspaper controversy, and also by the talk in which Gilbert always delighted. As I have noted, he loved to listen, and he was a little slow in getting off the mark with his own contribution. Many years later, an American interviewer described him, when he did get going, as answering questions in brief essays. Frank Swinnerton has admirably described the manner of speech so well remembered by his friends. His speech is prefaced and accompanied by a curious sort of humming, such as one may hear when glee-singers give each other the note before starting to sing. He pronounces the word I without egotism, as if it were I, and drawls not in the highly gentlemanly manner which Americans believe to be the English accent, and which many English call the Oxford accent, 
but in a manner peculiar to himself, either attractive or the reverse, according to one's taste. To me, attractive. Even more attractive to most of us was his fashion of making us feel that we had contributed something very worthwhile. He would take something one had said and develop it till it shone and glowed, not from its own worth, but from what he had made of it. Almost anything could thus become a starting point for a train of his best thought. And the style disliked by some in his writings was so completely the man himself that it was the same in conversation as in his books. He would approach a topic from every side, throwing light on those contradictory elements that made a paradox. He himself had what he attributes to St. Thomas, that instantaneous presence of mind, which alone really deserves the name of wit. Asked once the traditional question what single book he would choose if cast on a desert island, he replied, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. In talk, as in his books, G.K. loved to play upon words, and sometimes, of course, this was merely a matter of words, and the puns were bad ones. Once, for instance, after translating the French phrase for playing truant as he goes to the bushy school, or the school among the bushes, he adds, not lightly to be confounded with the art school at Bushy. This is indefensible, but rare. Christopher Morley has noted how his play upon words often led to a genuine play upon thoughts. One of Chesterton's best pleasantries was his remark on the so-called emancipation of women. Twenty million young women rose to their feet with the cry, We will not be dictated to and proceeded to become stenographers. He complained in a review of a novel, Every modern man is an atlas carrying the world, and we are introduced to a new cosmos with every new character. Each man has to be introduced, accompanied by his cosmos, like a jealous wife, or on the principle of Love me, love my dogma. Each of Chesterton's readers can think of a hundred instances of this inspired fooling. Many have been given in this book, and many will yet be given. But the thing went far deeper than fooling. It has been compared by Mr. Belloc to the gospel parables as a method of teaching and of illumination. He made men see what they had not seen before. He made them know. He was an architect of certitude whenever he practiced the art in which he excelled. Belloc's analysis of this special element of Chesterton's style, alike written and spoken, is of first-rate importance to an understanding of the man whose mind at this date was still rapidly developing, while his method of expression had become what it remained to the end of his life. His unique, his capital genius for illustration by parallel, by example, is his peculiar mark. The word peculiar is here the operative word. No one whatsoever that I can recall in the whole course of English letters had his amazing, I would almost say superhuman, capacity for parallelism. Now parallelism is a gift or method of vast effect in the conveyance of truth. Parallelism 
consists in the illustration of some unperceived truth by its exact consonance with the reflection of a truth already known and perceived. Whenever Chesterton begins a sentence with, It is as though, in exploding a false bit of reasoning, you may expect a stroke of parallelism as vivid as a lightning flash. Always, in whatever manner he launched the parallelism, he produced the shock of illumination. He taught. Parallelism was so native to his mind, it was so naturally a fruit of his mental character, that he had difficulty in understanding why others did not use it with the same lavish facility as himself. I can speak here with experience, for in these conversations with him, or listening to his conversation with others, I was always astonished at an ability in illustration which I not only have never seen equaled, but cannot remember to have seen attempted. He never sought such things. They poured out from him as easily as though they were not the hard-forged products of intense vision, but spontaneous remarks. To return to the Blatchford controversy, a final point of interest is a psychological one. G.K. admits his difficulty in using in his arguments the reverent solemnity of the agnostic. He realizes that he is thought flippant because he is amusing on a subject where he is more certain than of the existence of the moon. Christianity is itself so jolly a thing that it fills the possessor of it with a certain silly exuberance, which sad and high-minded rationalists might reasonably mistake for mere buffoonery. But if this is his own psychology, he faces too the special difficulty of theirs. The main and towering barrier that he wished, but hardly hoped, to surmount. He was the first person, I think, to see that free thought was no longer a young movement, but old, and even fossilized. It had formed minds which were now too set to be altered. It had its own dogmas, and its own most rigid orthodoxy. "'You are armed to the teeth,' he told the readers of the Clarion, and buttoned up to the chin with the great agnostic orthodoxy, perhaps the most placid and perfect of all the orthodoxies of men. I approach you with the reverence and the courage due to a bench of bishops.' The Clarion controversy was, as we have seen, in 1903 and 1904, when Chesterton was approaching thirty. Others of those I have mentioned come later, but I don't think any, or even all of them, fully explain the depth and riches of orthodoxy. End of chapter 12 Recording by Candace Tuttle